Okay, finally, we're here. Romans 11, please. Romans 11, 25. Continuing in our Romans, the epistle, toward the Twin Peaks, which would be 1132 and 832. Let's take a couple of moments just to ready ourselves, prepare ourselves for an experience of the Holy Spirit. Father, by your own divine action, you are working within Tadalestai Phalanx, a profound gratitude to you for the faithfulness you demonstrated in calling us into our participation with your Son. We pray that you will allow this gratitude to become deeper and deeper, as you grant more and more insight to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of grace, who leads us into all the truth and who most of all glorifies your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, as always, that Jesus' life will be manifested in us as a result of what we hear and that he will be glorified and honored in our gathering here together. We anticipate an experience of reality. We anticipate the experience of your Holy Spirit as he manifests our Lord Jesus Christ in a profound way to each and every person here. We thank you for this opportunity in his name. Amen. Romans 11.25. My siblings. That's my way of capturing brothers and sisters in one word. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be wise only in your own estimation. That hardness has come about in part of Israel only until the totality of the Gentiles come in. Then, without further ado, all Israel will be saved. Now the mystery enters here in the climactic phase of Paul's argument, which has been running throughout Romans, in which he joins both the totality, that's that famous word, ta, pleroma, ta, 
Pleroma. The article T-O-P-L-E-R-O-M-A, for those listening by audio. The Pleroma of Israel, which is Romans 11, 12, and again in 26, all of Israel. A word that Paul takes very seriously in Romans and deploys it on his own argument 77 times. That pleroma added to the totality. Pleroma means a totality. It relates to the word all in as much as it refers to all without exception. The pleroma of the nations in Romans 11.25. The totality of all the nations. This isn't just all the nations when Jesus comes back. This is all the nations and all of Israel throughout all of time, which we call, theologically speaking, diachronic, all times. And so the mystery enters here in the climactic phase of Paul's argument, in which he joins these two pleromas together in a biblical arithmetic that equals all of humanity. All of the nations and all of Israel are the beneficiaries of God's salvific action, and they are the equal beneficiaries of God's salvific action. In Romans 11, then, ta ta pleroma ton ethnon, the totality of all the nations, and to pleroma Israel of all humanity and all of its times is the sum of these two pleromas. And therefore, this is what the mystery reveals. The mystery, we've referred to it in two ways. The mystery, using the Latin term pars pro toto, meaning sometimes you see the word mystery in Paul's writings, and it's referring to a part of the mystery as the whole of the mystery. The whole of the mystery is only found in Romans 16.25 and 26, and also Ephesians 1.10 the mystery of God's will to savingly sum up all things. That's all created reality. That's what I call a universal diachronic transformation. And that's the mystery in toto. Mystery in its parts include the salvation of all of Israel. The salvation of all of Israel is part of the mystery, but it's within the context of the salvation of all of humanity. And that, too, is another concentric circle around that. It's within the salvation or the liberation of all of created reality in all of its times, diachronic, throughout all time. It also includes the very redemption of what we call history. And so the revealed secret of God, in which the part is put for the whole here, is the mystery that... God has permitted, in fact, in one sense, even caused the hardness of part of Israel until. You'll notice that part, until. Part is a spatial kind of a thing, and until is a temporal kind of thing. Partial, temporal, until. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Even that is only a manner of speaking, because all of this has already occurred in the crucified and risen Jesus. All of this has already 
been done. It's a done deal in the crucified Christ. This is why Paul said, and I figured I don't have any right to say something different. I determined to communicate nothing to you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The tense of him crucified there, the verbal tense implies the resurrection. Having been crucified, the same Jesus is raised. In the crucifixion, Jesus identified with the worst of what happens in reality in what we call history. He identified with the worst. He identified with the most God-forsaken, as they're called, in all of humanity. And in the resurrection, he revealed the universal restoration. And that, therefore, we determine, any preacher of the gospel ought to determine, that we do not know anything apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. That means you cannot detach or disengage any scripture from that reality. In fact, that reality is what scriptures must submit to and not the other way around. You search the scriptures, but you don't come to me, he said. So then, the mystery in toto, or the mystery in its totality, let's just say, what is it? It's the revealed secret of God's intention. Indeed, as Ephesians 1.11 puts it, his unstoppable determination to savingly sum up all of created reality in Christ. Ephesians 1.9-11. This, in fact, becomes the base reality of all of Paul's epistles. And there's an inclusio of Ephesians 1.9-10 with Romans 16.25-27. All of Paul's epistles re refer to this mystery. They are based in the mystery. Now, this has already been done in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And that's what I call the eschatological perspective. Even today, reading Moltmann's book, I read a page in Moltmann's book in which the word Jesus was used many times and in which the word reality was used many times on the same page. So this has already been done in the person of Jesus, in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. We call it the eschatological perspective. Moltmann actually said this should be called the eschatological Christological perspective. And he's right, of course. I've been leading up to that myself. I'm going to just flip it and say the Christological eschatological perspective. And we'll be outlining this. This is part of what I've called at the New Year's Eve service or nearby New Year's Eve, Operation Epsilon. It has yet to be fully manifested, that is, what God has done in Christ has yet to be fully manifested historically in the parousia. When Jesus comes from heaven to consummate the universal diachronic restoration, perhaps we should do another 2019 acronym, UDR, Universal Diachronic Restoration, Acts 3, 20 and 21. 
Notice that Paul is speaking here that from a purely historical perspective, without the augmentation of intelligence or what we call spiritual intelligence or understanding or insight, a purely historical perspective, without the augmentation of insight that comes from the knowledge of the mystery, leads only to being wise in one's own estimation. We used to call it a legend in one's own mind. Someone would say, that guy's legendary, and we'd say, yeah, I know him. He's a legend in his own mind. And that's what Paul says in Romans 16. I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, because if you're ignorant of the mystery, you're ignorant of a Christological, eschatological perspective. You lack it. There is a lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A, a lack an absence of vacuum in your intelligence. And you'll only be wise in your own estimation. And that wisdom in our own estimation leads to, well, a kind of hyperephania, which I still have yet to do a message on. I'll call it welcome guys and dolls. Hyperephania. Group bias. Paul is bringing, as I, I could almost summarize my view of Romans, my take on Romans. This is the 120th message in Romans, 120th hour. As Paul presenting this perspective and bearing it down to the demolition of walls that separate groups into separate, fragmented, polarized corners where they only come out to fight. Among Christians, that is. But that also fans out through all of society and all of civilization. Paul is actually dealing against something that is the end, has the potential to end not only the effectiveness of a church, but also the effectiveness and the freedom of a national entity or even of what we call a civilization. So there's profound impact of preaching the gospel. What God has done in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, which is the eschatological perspective, has yet to be fully manifested historically at the parousia. That is when Jesus comes from heaven to consummate what he inaugurated at the cross and in resurrection. Notice that a purely historical perspective leads to wisdom in one's own estimation only. This kind of wisdom aids and abets hyperephania, which we're going to describe sometime down the road, and group bias. Group bias lacks the full development of spiritual intelligence. The lack of spiritual intelligence is augmented or filled by the installation of eschatological perspective, which essentially is the perspective of God, the way God sees things. He is Yahweh, the high and lofty one, who dwells in a high and holy place with him also, who is of a crushed spirit. Blessed is the man or the woman, studies the word of God with a crushed spirit, because you will dwell with the one who dwells in a high and holy place. It's an ironic thing that God elevates your perspective when you're humble 
and then he humbles you by that elevated perspective. Isaiah 57, 15 is again a key verse. To quote Clifford Green, who was the editor of the critical English edition of Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Bonhoeffer, of course, wrote famously Letters from Prison. He wrote a book called Ethics. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is misunderstood by many people. Because many people don't understand that the cost of discipleship includes the cost of your own merit, your own devotedness, your own piety, your own just about everything, not just about. But editing, the editor of this edition of Bonhoeffer's Ethics said this, and I want to, this is what I really want to key in on. He says, from the perspective of God, so to speak, The reconciliation of God and the world. God and humanity is in Jesus Christ an ontological reality. An ontological simply means a real being, a reality that is real. See, experiences used to be talked about all the time in my early Christianity. Someone would say, I've had an experience. To me, experience is extremely important if the experience is of something that is real. And we'll be getting into this when we hit Galatians, if that's where our next thing is. But again, I want to quote him. From the perspective of God, so to speak, the reconciliation of God and the world, God and humanity, is in Jesus Christ an ontological reality. It's a present reality now. It's an existent truth and reality now. In the same excellent treatment of Bonhoeffer's theology in Militant Grace, which is a very important book, a tough one to be sure, but an important one. As a title for a section in a chapter on Bonhoeffer, this is the title of the section, and this is what really impacted me. It says, Reconciliation in Jesus Christ is constitutive of reality. Meaning, reality is the very reconciliation in Jesus Christ. That is, from the divine perspective, reality. Despite what we see around us in current trends, despite history, despite anything else that we see, faith lays hold of this reality. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And so, in fact, according to Philip Ziegler, who I really highly regard as a theologian, as one who knows the theologies of other men like Bonhoeffer, he was, Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis in April of 1945, just a few days short of VE Day, victory over Europe. But he says, Ziegler says, this is one of, quote, two claims that structure all of Bonhoeffer's theological ethics. First, that revelation is reconciliation. And second, that the event of reconciliation in Jesus Christ is constitutive of 
reality. In other words, reality is that reconciliation of God with humanity. It is a present, existent reality. Now, if I were to amend this slightly, it would sum up the invasive disclosure that I personally received 47 years ago today when God was pleased to reveal his son in me at a moment of unspeakable desperation. Though I agree wholeheartedly with this claim of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as articulated in Militant Grace, I would say that for me, the claim that reconciliation to God of all humanity and of all creation in all of its times is constitutive of reality. Again, I would say the claim that structures all of my faith and my preaching and teaching is that Jesus Christ precisely as the reconciliation to God of all humanity and of all creation in all of its times is constitutive of reality. Pared down into an abbreviation, reality is Jesus. In this very present moment as I speak to you, Jesus embodies in himself all of uncreated reality, all that can be called God. Bodily, Colossians 2.9. Moreover, in this same moment as I speak to you, Jesus embodies in himself all of created reality ever since his incarnation. Jesus is the reality of the reconciliation to God of the world. Moreover, speaking of the incarnation, Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said this, In the incarnation, God makes himself known as him who wishes to exist not for himself, but for us. There's Romans 8.32. God is for us. He goes on to say, Consequently, in view of the incarnation of God, to live as a man before God can only mean to exist not for oneself, but for God and for other men. We mean He means, of course, other men and women. In Jesus Christ is the reconciliation to God of all of created reality because in the Christ event, we call it, culminating with Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, all historically testified events, incidentally, and his resurrection from the dead, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
not imputing their trespasses to them. Everything hinges on us escaping the guilt that keeps us from living this life, not imputing the world's trespasses to them. If God was in Christ, simple logic, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then the world is reconciled to God in Christ. Jesus Christ exists now as the reality, with a capital R, of that reconciliation. Just as he exists now as the propitiation or expiation of the sins of the world. John the Elder, in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, does not merely say that expiation, which is the removal of sin, propitiation, would be a kind of satisfaction of God in the judgment of sin. So I call it both propitiation and expiation. He does not say that expiation was accomplished by Jesus Christ, though that is certainly true. He says that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, presently exists and lives as the propitiation. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation. Jesus is the reality that sin has been removed and that your and my complicity with sin has been judged in another. From the Christological, eschatological perspective, Jesus is the sum total of the reality of God's universally saving grace in a person named Jesus. The sin of the world was taken away. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if he died to remove sin, the sin of the world has been taken away. So why do we keep imputing it to ourselves and to others? Truth is the manifestation of God's grace in a person named Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Truth is an altogether gracious reality. Truth is the reality that is embodied in Jesus in Ephesians 4.21. And Jesus is the reality that all things are reconciled to God. That sin has been expiated, removed. That death has been vanquished, defeated. That the flesh, as a suprahuman power, has been stripped of its enslaving power. That the prince of this world has been deposed. And that all of created reality has been drawn into Jesus Christ. Eschatologically, that is a reality right now. Behold, I'm making all things new. 
it is done. That's the view of the enthroned God. So what do we hope for then? We hope for this reality to be displayed universally, resulting in the experience, yes, experience of salvation for all of humankind and liberation for all of creation diachronically. Romans 8, 19 to 23. We, by the Spirit, Wait for the hope of righteousness. From faithfulness, ekpistios. That is, what we're waiting for is the universal manifestation of the saving act of God achieved from Christ's faithfulness. That's what Galatians 5.5 means. Waiting for the hope of righteousness means waiting for its realization universally the realization of the saving act of God in Christ to be realized universally. 47 years ago today, I realized this in a sudden, stunning revelation of Jesus. The spoken word to me was Jesus. It was a saving word. It reverberated into the depths of my soul then, and it has not stopped reverberating until this very moment. Now with more meaning, more definition, more sense of identity. That was an experience. And it was an experience that was real. He did not give me a commission. He gave me a a gift called faith, a deep and abiding one. He didn't say, go and do this or go and do that. He didn't say, I'm going to make you do this, and I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you this, and I'm going to make you that. He simply spoke the word Jesus, which was a saving word to me. Because maybe somebody can't realize what it means to not even know what reality is at all. Not even at all. And to be that desperate and to cry out, reality is And just have three dots after that. And feel your soul leaving reality. And to have something invade a word. Jesus. The word. 47 years ago today. At the University of Vermont. On a Sunday though. January 23rd. That happened. And so, ever since then, it's been fanning out in me what it means. What just what does that mean? Jesus is reality. To read a book today and read a page on which the word Jesus as connected with reality, happened about nine times on one page from Moltmann's book called Hope, on on the study of hope, a little doctrine of hope. Kind of, well, it kind of blew my mind, I'd say it that way. See, that experience didn't clean up all my vocabulary. 
fact, I got pretty bad after that. Not good, not better, kind of worse. And I guess I just had to realize that if God was going to do it, God had to do it. God had to do it. So the hope of righteousness is the expectation that what is already done will be diachronically manifested in the redemption of all creation and of history itself. The spoken word Jesus to me all of a sudden said everything is already all right in Jesus. That's the profound, literally to me that experience said all that. That experience in that moment said all that I've been trying to say for 47 years since then. And I still can't articulate it completely. But it's astounding. The mystery that Paul speaks of is ultimately the secret which is now apocalyptically revealed. I actually remember praying, why can't it always be like that moment? Why does it have to be? I felt like he just dropped me right into an arena of contention where I better strap on some armament really quick because the powers that are against that revelation were fierce and very threatening. And it's called the agona, the arena of contention. And it was the assurance came, not in a word, but it's necessary for now. So, let it be. The mystery that Paul speaks of then is ultimately the secret now revealed in order to be perceived that in the writings of the prophets, called the Old Testament, God was speaking of the salvific summation of all things in his son, all the way through it. The Old Testament, as we call it, the prophetic writings or the writings of the prophets, offered the historical prophetic perspective. You've got to have more than that. The New Testament provides the eschatological perspective. The New Testament presents the Christological, eschatological perspective within the prophetic historical events of the Christ event and the immediate aftermath of that event. In fact, the New Testament provides a prelude to that event, the Christmas story, as we call it, and the aftermath of that event in the book of Acts, etc., and the implications of that event in Paul's epistles, which are universal in their horizon. The great error that people make in seeing two different gods in the Old Testament and the New Testament results from the failure to have the Christological, eschatological viewpoint. The absence of this viewpoint is the lack of the understanding of the mystery, which is the same as the eschatological, Christological viewpoint. To have this viewpoint is to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That simply means to know nothing outside. Of him. He became identified with all the very worst of reality that we can only sum up as God forsakenness in his crucifixion. 
That's part of the necessity of why we go through life with its adversities and with its adversaries. All scripture is interpreted in the light of the risen Jesus. Jesus Christ is not interpreted by the light of scripture. The light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ is the light in which scripture is interpreted. The men who searched the scriptures all day long didn't recognize Jesus when he came. If they had recognized Jesus when he came, they would have read the scriptures intelligently. In his light, we see light. So when we read or hear the writings of the prophets, as we do in Romans 11, 26, right where we are now, to 27, we're unable to see the fulfillment of the covenant that God had with Israel apart from the crucified and risen Jesus, who is both the tripping stone, historically speaking, the stone that tripped up Israel, and the foundation stone eschatologically speaking, the stone of salvation that God laid in Zion. So look at Romans 11.26b. See, all this is in the context of Scripture. 11.26b, as it is written, all Israel shall be saved, all Israel is to be saved, already is, eschatologically, is yet to be, historically speaking. As it is written, meaning in the prophetic writings, namely here in Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, if you want to read that on your own, followed by a conflation or a melding of Isaiah 27, 9 with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It says, the rescuer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness. Remove it. The word is asabea or asebia. And it's the same word used in Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all Asabia. Asabia. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Not just the pagans. And in verse 27 and the second verse he quotes really from Jeremiah 31, 33, the very famous new, new covenant verse. And this is my covenant with them, meaning this is the fulfillment of, of my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Many observations can be listed here. We'll get into a doctrinal phase. Number one, and I'll hit them quickly, and this will be in print. Ungodliness is the word asebia in the Greek. It looks like this, A-S-E-B-E-I-A, asebia. Asebia, A-S-E-B-E-I-A. Asebia means it, ungodliness. It was employed in Romans 1.18 in the beginning of a long complaint that Paul allows to be written in Romans, a complaint by moralistic Jews and also Gentiles. Moralistic. Against the idolatrous behaviors of pagans, especially their sexually immoral behaviors. But it's that same asabia that is removed from Jacob by the Redeemer. Second, 
observation. The passages from which these fragments are quoted contain information about the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom God promises will be forever with his people Israel. Isaiah 59, 21 says this, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. 2A. I'm listing this, 2A, the A part of the second observation. The taking away of the sins of Israel and Judah occurs only within the larger horizon of the taking away of the sin of the world by the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the expiation of our sins, and not for Israel's sins only, or for the church's sins only, but for the sins of the world, the whole world. First John 2.2. 2. Third observation from these, this passage. The gift of the Spirit alluded to in the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Israel, a unilateral covenant which God does all the fulfilling without contingency on the part of Israel. The gift of the Spirit alluded to in the fulfillment of the covenant correlates with the remarkable and extensive pneumatology, study of the Spirit, in Romans 8, which we're taking up largely on Sundays, which we might bleed over into other days, but it arises from Romans 2.29 and Romans 5.5. Israel is never identified as true Israel apart from the Spirit, and the Spirit is never identified apart from Christ. 3A, the permanent gift of the Spirit to Israel occurs within the larger horizon of the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. What we fail to recognize is that the effect of the poured out Spirit on all flesh is always a saving effect. Fourth, the salvation of all that's that little word pas here, but it has other formations in the Greek. The little word pas times 77 in Romans. Paul takes it pretty darn seriously. So 3a, or 4 rather, the salvation of all of Israel takes place within the larger horizon. That's the ninth theological functional specialty I'm using in Romans in the larger horizon of the salvation of all flesh or of all humanity, and that still within a larger horizon called a cosmic horizon of the liberation of all of creation and the redemption of history itself. Fifth, Paul takes the word all seriously here as elsewhere in Romans where the word is deployed 77 times. It means all without exception and all without limitations of time. All of Israel is saved within the context of a divine rescue of all of creation from superhuman powers, which though defeated 
still have not, in the words of Beverly Gaventa in a recent excellent interview, they still haven't left the field. Romans 8.35 talks about it. Terror and peril and sword and famine and These are names for supernatural powers. They are defeated eschatologically in Christ, but they haven't left the field. And I always give the illustration of Samuel cutting off the royal tassel of Saul and saying, today the kingdom is removed from you and given to another. The kingdom has been removed from Satan, the prince of this world, and given to another, Jesus Christ, the man after God's own heart and God himself in one person. But Saul hasn't left the field, and he's got plenty of javelins to throw, historically speaking. So as magnificent as this revelation, as magnificent as this awesome revelation in Jesus, there's still a battle. But nothing is able to separate us, and us means all of creation and all of its times, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How can we be separated from love that's omnipresent. And omnipresence includes its diachronic presence through time and its spatial presence across the universe. John Lennon should have known that when he wrote that song, during which he also spoke in tongues, apparently. You know, read it. You can listen to it across the universe by the Beatles. Anyways, Paul takes the word all seriously. Sixth, but remember, the powers that are defeated have not left the field of battle. Six, repentance as a human act is never mentioned in the taking away of the sins of Israel and of the whole world for that matter. Let me say it this way. The taking away of the sins from Israel and from the world is a divine action requiring no contingent act or disposition on the part of Israel or the world or of creation itself. God doesn't say to creation, which he personifies in Romans eight nineteen to 23, I'll liberate you if you show remorse. All all creation can do is scream with labor pains. God does the action of deliverance. You never find repentance in all of Romans either, except one time when it's quoted in Romans 2.4 with an application about God's goodness bringing about a change of mind in people. Never. You say the book of Acts has it. Yeah, I'll tell you. Someday I'll explain the difference between what's in Acts and what's in Romans as I'll explain the difference between history and eschatology and Christology. Seven, the taking away of the sins of Israel and of the world is not strictly a future event. It occurred in the Christ event. The Christ event includes the incarnation, the life of perfect obedience lived by Jesus Christ resulting in, culminating in his obedience to the death of the cross, death by crucifixion, burial, resurrection. And even after his resurrection, God was not done in the transformation of Jesus, which is why he said to Mary, don't touch me yet. I haven't ascended to my father, meaning though he was raised, the transformation had not yet been fully occurred to him until he ascended to the father. There's something else there's always something 
else. And so, Paul saw him, not only raised, but glorified in the sense that very few have ever seen him. I'm convinced God did not let me see him for many reasons. Because then he said, have a deep and abiding faith, which doesn't go by sight. So, the taking away the sins of Israel and the world is not a strictly future event. It occurred in the Christ event. More specifically, not the event. It occurred in the crucified Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Eighth, eschatologically speaking, God has already done this. Reconciled the world to himself. The universal diachronic manifestation, that's the key word now, manifestation of this already done deal is yet future. That's what we're waiting for. That's hope. That's why, and I'm going to tangle with this little idea someday soon, maybe sooner than we think, what they call preterism, full preterism. Full preterism is a doctrinal system that takes away hope. And I'll explain why. So then, when Jesus was approaching his imminent death, while he inaugurated the Eucharist that we call it, and while he was raising the chalice filled with the unfermented juice of the vine, he said this, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out, the present active, or rather, Passive participle of ek keo. His, it's already being poured out. The blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out. Same word used for the pouring out of the spirit on all flesh. Spirit on all flesh. Blood poured out for all flesh. Spirit poured out on all flesh. In other words, the beneficiaries of Christ's blood, his death, are the same as the beneficiaries and recipients of Christ's spirit. He said, again, this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the sending away of sins, the sending away of sins. He has in mind the scapegoat where the sins of Israel are confessed while the priest lays his hands on the head of a goat, and the goat is sent out into the wilderness with all the sins of Israel. Not Israel's sins alone. Many. Many. And if I haven't established this, and if you don't know this yet, I hope you'll learn it quickly. Right now, in fact, would be a good time. When he said the many, many for the sending away of sins, Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Mark fourteen twenty four. By now we understand that many is actually Jesus' understatement and that it indicates all without exception of humanity. In Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28, 20, we've explored this where Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and that that service would relate to his giving of his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2.6, Paul writes this. He gave his life as a ransom for all. Not only that, 
Many equals all there. In Romans 5.18, the many, the all equals the many in 5.19. Paul interchangeably turns these terms. They are used interchangeably. So put together Matthew 20.28, Mark 10.45, Matthew 26.28, Mark 14.24. I would almost want to command this if I had that kind of authority, but I don't. Put that together with 1 Timothy 2.6 and compare Romans 5.18 to 19 where Paul uses many and all interchangeably. And you would dare after that limit the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I don't think so. Ninth point, observation, and we'll close very shortly. The salvation of all flesh is linked to this critical passage, Psalm 143.2, which is the Septuagint, the Greek translation, is found in 142.2, quoted very strategically with emendations by Paul. When Paul amends something or changes it up, it's under the authority of the Holy Spirit in Romans 3.20. That verse says literally all, pas. It says in the Greek, all, pas, All flesh will not be justified in God's sight. All flesh will not be justified in God's sight. What's God's sight? God's viewpoint, eschatological viewpoint, Christological viewpoint. All flesh will not. That's why the psalmist said, don't judge me, Lord. Don't enter into judgment with your servant because I know that all flesh will not be justified in your sight. Paul interpreted that as should be. No living person can be justified in God's sight, in the divine view. No living person. So Christ died. And when Christ died, Romans 6, 7 said, he was justified or liberated from the power of sin for all. Christ died died for all then all died so the all that can't be justified while they're living all died with Christ to be justified in him that's why Romans 5:18 is not kidding around when it says in Christ by his act of righteousness his act of obedience all will be justified with life have the justification of life so I haven't yet developed this fully like I want to. So we may say now all flesh is justified in God's sight. Because when Christ died, all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14. And when he arose, vindicated and justified, he arose from the dead for our justification. Our means everybody's all through time. Romans 4.25. So when he arose, vindicated and justified, all flesh arose, vindicated and justified. In God's sight. If you were offered God's viewpoint and still just wanted, or, or the alternative was to hold on to yours, what would you take? I'll take God's viewpoint. It's changed the whole inner mainspring of my thinking my acting, my being, my behaving, my judging, my determining, my decisions, everything. It's taken away all kinds of ambitions and motivations 
to excel in the view of this world. It has taken and made a new motivation to press on toward the mark of a high calling, the mark of the prize of a high calling in Christ Jesus, and to have no more righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes by the faithfulness of Christ. It's a transforming thing. It really is. Does that mean you're all cleaned up? (laughs) No. You are aware of your own sinfulness, which has not left the field yet. The spirit lusts against the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit. The flesh defeated, which has no hold over us, and we are not obligated to it, doesn't mean that we don't oblige ourselves to it. There's still this battle going on. And so we don't get into fluffy universalism around here. Apocalyptic theology saves us from the fluff of a universalism that's unitarian, silly, and mindless. So then, all flesh will not be justified in your sight is translated as no one living will be justified in your sight. No one living can ever be justified in God's sight by any human means. By any act of repentance or remorse or any change of disposition, or as Paul says emphatically, certainly not by the works of the law. Consequently, when Christ died, he died for all, and so all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Jesus is the one who died. The one who died, meaning the one representing all who died. Romans 6, 7, Romans 8, 34. Because he died, then all flesh was also justified. Because he died and was justified, all flesh was also justified. If anyone has a problem with this, then you can go to Romans 5, 9 to learn and to be reminded that we were justified by Christ's blood. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out, being poured out for the sending away of sins, the sins of the world. All flesh, therefore, or everyone, diachronically, is now justified in God's sight. Now, when we say in God's sight, you know what we're saying? We're saying in the eschatological perspective. That's what faith is. It's an eschatological perspective. It's the confident conviction of things not seen. And in fact, it's the very presence of the future in the present. It's the substance of things hoped for. Even now, but not completely like some would like to say in Corinth, This is Operation Epsilon. Now, finally, as I've been saying throughout Romans, the epistle, RTE, this continuous demonstration of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ bears down on the walls that separate people into polarized groups with their various biases. To demolish these biases and to produce unity 
so that the brethren can dwell together in unity. And God can command the blessing of the experience of eternal life. Even now, Psalm 133. I was hoping to do this on Sunday to honor the 90th birthday of my brother, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. My brother and yours. There are many quotes that I could give you tonight that show his profound insight into the things I'm talking about right now. But I'll just say this one because I think it captures the practical impact. It's kind of a happy belated 90th birthday wish to him. I think he died at 39 and so did Bonhoeffer. Kind of puts me to shame because I'm almost 43 now. Look at they had all together. But he said this, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. You must have read Romans. Because that's what Paul's saying. The alternatives that Romans presents to us are brothers and sisters living together in participation with Jesus' own life and faithfulness, or remaining at odds with one another in the Adamic ontology. That's perishing. Because you can't go to hell. So tell me that all day long if you want. And my answer to that, when people say to me, and they have from time to time, go to hell, I say, I can't. But I can do something pretty lousy. I can remain in the Adamic ontology and react to you telling me to go to hell and say, you go to hell. Can't go to hell. Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death for us. The valley of the shadow of death is the valley of Hinnom, hell, as it's called, Gehenna. He walked through that valley all the way through it for us. You can't go there. Who do you think you are? The height of arrogance. And that's why it's so miserable to think you're going to hell, because it's the most arrogant thing you can think. It magnifies your own sense of your own guilt above the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ's death. So the alternatives are participation with Jesus' life and faithfulness or remain at odds with one another holding on to our hyperephania, which is the prideful wish to show ourselves to be above others. And therefore, to learn to live together as brothers and sisters or to perish by remaining in the Adamic ontology. And that, in fact, is pretty much the message of Romans, the epistle. Thank you, Father, for the message tonight. 
because always delivered imperfectly, always delivered with, as the prophet said, stammering lips, a metaphor for our insufficiency. As Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? We, we just aren't. We just aren't. And if anything I've experienced, Father, in your presence speaking your word, is my insufficiency in articulating what you apocalyptically revealed to me 47 years ago tonight. That moment has never left. And I thank you, Father. I thank you for it. I thank you for the despair that led to the moment. I thank you for the moment. I thank you for all the blessings and the adversity and the fellowship I've had with people who represent Tethelestai phalanx right in this building right now and who are living in various other places in our country. I thank you. 